Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested on this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, joingelt.com. Dot com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder. We're going to be talking about, you know, basically building and scaling, but really interesting story. I mean, from being an early employee to making some investments of his own, and then also to starting, you know, his company that he is saying pushing now, you know, out of one of those emerging, you know, areas where, you know, perhaps you don't have like the hecticness and the action that you would see like in Silicon Valley, for example, but tremendous what he has been able to accomplish. So I think that you'll find this episode quite inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Anders Jones. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up in Boston? Boston was great. Boston's, uh, Boston's one of my, uh, my, my favorite cities. Um, was there for the first, uh, you know, first part of my life until I, I went to school. had a had a great experience there. Funny enough, haven't really been back, but um, it's uh, it it's definitely has a, a fun place in my heart. And also, you know, relevant to this audience, like very big and and continuing to expand tech scene there. Um, I, I think like uh, number three in the country for venture capital dollars deployed. I think that's so, amazing. Yeah. Now, now eventually. Eventually for you, you know, like things saying shifted a bit and you went to Stanford for yeah. your undergrad. So how was, how was, you know, going there, seeing like the land of innovation, you know, everyone doing startups, going to coffee shops and, you know, everyone talking about their ideas. I mean, how, how was that for you? It was interesting. So I got to Stanford in the fall of 2005. And so it was right, it was before like Web 2 really took off. It wasn't quite as bad as like 2002, 2003, when, you know, I'm told like the, you know, the, the tumbleweeds were blowing down 101 and it was like totally dead out there. Um, but there was like a little bit kind of starting to reemerge from the tech scene. And, you know, it's funny when I reflect on like things I would have done differently, um, I kind of blew it. I majored in international relations. So I had like nothing to do with the with the tech scene uh, and and didn't really take advantage of that. And I always figured that um, you know, I would go back to the East Coast and like get a job in finance or something like that. Uh, and so, um, you know, so so California was just sort of a stop along the way. 
What ended up happening was very different. I, I graduated in the spring of 2009, which um, was obviously a terrible time to graduate. I think 75% of my class didn't have a job when we graduated. So, uh, so it was a pretty, um, uh, you know, pretty stark time to be coming out of school. And I think a lot of plans that people had to, you know, sort of go the safe route, end up at Goldman, end up at McKinsey, whatever it is, uh, you know, those, those kind of got dashed in the, in the midst of all of that. So the same thing happened to me. I ended up um, going to work uh, on the early team of a startup that eventually became LiveRamp. So, um, you know, my, my life took a hard left turn at that point. And rather than going back to a traditional job on Wall Street, ended up uh, working in tech and the rest is history. Here we are. Now, you were there the eighth employee, and they obviously you had uh, not a lot of knowledge around startups, right? So um, why? Why did you join them? How did it come across your radar? And, and how did that happen? So uh, um, the, the, the really kind of the, the real story here is uh, there's a hotel on Sand Hill Road called the Rosewood, which now I think is you know, pretty storied in uh, in sort of Silicon Valley history. But um, in 2009, it opened in the spring of 2009. And, uh, you know, like there was like no, no jobs to be had. Right. So like doing the traditional recruiting, uh, path, like, you know, talking to career counselors and stuff like that at school was just like, it was kind of dead. So I basically started going to the bar at the Rosewood, um, uh, during like at, at, in the evenings and basically like networking and just like meeting venture capitalists, um, and trying to like find a job. And so I met this guy, uh, Richard Ling, who was a, a partner at a VC firm called Rembrandt. And we became good friends. And he was like, Hey, like I have a, um, you know, I've got a, a portfolio company uh, at the time it was called Rapleaf, uh, that's hiring. And, um, you know, let me introduce you to the CEO. And so I met the CEO, a guy named Oren Hoffman, uh, who's since gone on to uh, found multiple companies. And uh, he's now inventor himself. He's a really, really um, dynamic guy and very like non-obvious and contrarian thinker. And his whole thing was like, hey, I'm going to hire uh, young, smart people who have little experience and just kind of turn them loose and see what happens. And so, um, you know, I guess I uh, I met, I, I sort of met his um I sort of met his bar and, uh, and we ended up, um, you know, I ended up working there and, you know, I worked on the business development team there and basically he was like, here's, you know, here's our capabilities, like go figure out how to make money. So it was a ton of fun. I mean, it was like sort of maximum creativity, like do whatever you want. Um, you know, I think I might've gotten a sued once or twice. Uh, you know, it was just like complete, uh, you know, sort of complete free reign. And, um, you know, that ended up being a, a really successful business. Um, the company sold to Axiom in 2013 or 2014. Uh, and it was a really good sort of multi hundred million dollar exit. And it's subsequently got spun out as a public company that, um, you know, still trades today. So that was a definitely a formative experience where, you know, once I got a taste of that, I realized that, entrepreneurship was definitely the path for me. Well, what were the um, the ingredients that you saw? Because, I mean, when you're the eighth employee, I mean, it's still quite early in the yeah. uh, life cycle of the of the business. But what were some of those uh, ingredients that uh, that perhaps, you know, like you are like, OK, you know, like uh, th these are some of the ingredients that made this company so successful? I would say um, the uh, the sort of number one thing that like really resonated or that really sort of shown through was um, we had such an incredibly high bar for talent 
and uh, and bringing people into the company. Um, to this day, those are some of the smartest people I've ever met, let alone worked with. Um, and so, like, we had just this like like crazy brilliant team. And um, when I left, I think we were probably about forty five or fifty people. Like, you know, it was a it was a great outcome with a relatively small team. And I think that that was. Um, the like the firepower uh you know really sort of shown through there um and that was one because we went through some pretty rocky times so we the live ramp uh was in the the retargeting business and basically taking offline data and putting it online um to allow for ad targeting and this was in like you know 2010 2011 this is right sort of at the beginning of a lot of the big online privacy debates and sort of like, you know, what are your rights as a consumer? How should companies and websites uh, respect your your data privacy? Um, and so we were kind of pushing the limits there. Or yeah, it's not fair. We, we always behave very ethically, but we were sort of like doing things that weren't being that weren't regulated because no one had ever contemplated it. And so there are a couple of moments where we had to, um, you know, really sort of take a few steps back and say, okay, something that we're doing, or, you know, we've had some success with is now not really, uh, you know, considered part of like, what's, what's kosher. Um, and so, you know, we had some rocky moments in our business and, um, but, but like the brilliance of the team always sort of like, we, we always sort of pulled it back and then, um, and, and, you know, came up with the next thing and then ultimately figured out, um, you know, the, the business that LiveRamp is today. So I would say that was a number one, like, you know, it's a little bit of a cliche that's like, oh, you know, the, the team is so important, the quality of your team is so important. But that was for sure the number one thing that I think shown through as, as like the thing that got us through some of the, the rockier times. So, so obviously, you know, in this case, the company gets acquired, as you were saying, and then you are in your 20s with a bunch of money in your pockets and uh, not, not bad. So, so what happened next? What was, what, what was the next chapter? I would say, I would say I was like Silicon Valley, uh, like lower middle class at that point. I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't a bunch of money, but it was, it was enough to be, um, you know, for, for as a 25 year old, it was, it was nice. So one of the board members, um, a guy named Patrick McKenna, he and I had worked together a lot on a number of business development deals uh, at, at LiveRamp and had really, you know, grown, grown a friendship out of that. And we basically said, hey, let's keep working together. Um, so we, um, we uh, started off uh, just doing some uh, joint investing. So we were investing in, uh, in early stage companies. And we had this thesis around um, investing in uh, teams and companies outside of Silicon Valley. So we're looking at sort of other cities that had emerging tech scenes. Um, Patrick actually moved to Miami in the middle of, of, of all this. This was long before Miami was sort of like hot and on the radar of, uh, you know, of, of, of folks like it was in the last couple of years. Um, and we um, and, you know, we did deals sort of all around the country. Um, Ended up doing a number of deals in Baltimore, and you know that's relevant to the Facet story because ultimately uh, I moved there to found Facet. Um, but you know, got really interested and realized that like you know there is a ton of opportunity in in innovation. You know, one of the sort of realizations we had is that Silicon Valley is very good at taking an idea and scaling it. Um, there's a great amount of talent that that sort of takes like the core uh, core innovation and bringing it to market. Um, but it's actually like, not that great at the core innovation. Like, you know, one of my favorite stats is like Johns Hopkins files, I, I want to say something like five or 600 patents a year. Um, there aren't that many organizations in Silicon Valley that that 
uh, you know, are creating at that at that level. Like you might have Stanford, maybe Berkeley, um, Intel, Apple, but like that's kind of it. And um, and you know, Google certainly. Um, but you know, you have all these these like really amazing organizations around institutions around the country that um, you know come up with the core idea or core innovation, but then don't have the resources around it to uh, to scale it and, and commercialize it. And so that was sort of the arbitrage that we were playing. So then what uh, what happened here too, because you had the the opportunity as well of investing in some companies, you were able to see some pattern recognition. So how did yeah. you apply that to, to, uh, to this next chapter as well? Yeah, so as part of the, the, the sort of investing um, that we were doing together, you know, we also, in the back of our minds are saying, hey, let's find an idea in a really big industry with a really big market that could build like a game-changing company. And we we thought about a lot of different things. We looked at healthcare, we looked at fintech, we looked at ad tech again. Um, you know, there's a lot of um a, a lot of uh you know sort of ideas that, that we bounced around over over a couple of years. <clears throat> We kept coming back to financial services, and we we each had like a personal connection uh, to the industry. My mom actually worked in financial services for her entire career. Um, uh, you know, was was pretty integral in building up Fidelity's retirement business. Um, and then, uh, and Patrick's uh, mom had actually had the opposite experience, where she was a um, uh, a postal worker and basically retired with her savings, walked down to an Edward Jones office, and they tried to sell her a really high fee, high commission product that was wildly inappropriate for her. And fortunately, he, she called him and he was like, wait a second, don't do this. So we sort of <clears throat> had this, this like thing in our mind that kept bringing us back to financial services and thinking like, this is an old antiquated industry um, with an enormous market. They make a ton of money. There's definitely room for disruption here. And then the the big sort of aha moment was in 2015, the Obama administration tried to pass this rule. It's called the fiduciary rule. And basically what that what that was, was um, a, a rule that would have said, if you're a financial advisor, you're now legally obligated to act in the best interest of your clients. And that rule didn't pass. And it didn't pass because the pushback from the industry was, uh, if you do this, you're going to end up with uh, about eight million households that lose the their advisor relationship because the advisor can't afford to both service them and act in their best interest. So, like, if you just like take that at face value, basically that's the industry saying, um, "Yeah, we're screwing eight million of our clients. Like, we are actually not acting in their best interests." But it's better for them to have help than to not have help. And that was like such a mind-blowing moment where I was like, wow, this is like a, a very public thing that they're saying. Um, but but like no no one is like connecting the dots and saying that there's something like profoundly screwed up about the way this market works. So that was sort of the the genesis of the whole idea. And we and then from there, sort of the pieces the pieces came together. We spent a lot of time looking at the market and understanding, okay, what you know, what are the where are the places where you could really apply technology to move the needle here, and that was ultimately um, you know where we where we came up with Facet, which is subscription based financial planning focused on the mass affluent market, so focused on people who wouldn't typically work with a traditional advisor. So you know we've lowered costs, we've increased access, and we fundamentally changed what uh, financial planning is for, uh, for for these folks. And for the people that are listening, how do you guys make money? What's the business model there? 
Yeah, so it is a uh, pure subscription. So uh, the average client pays us about $3,000 a year. And uh, they get a dedicated certified financial planner. So the sort of highest level of financial advice uh, that's, that's available. Um, we look at every aspect of their financial life. You know, if you think about the sort of traditional uh, sort of industry uh, financial advice, it's uh, let me manage your money and I will help you save for retirement. And that's basically it. We have this, this, this belief that, you know, you can live better today with uh with with expert help on your side um you know we basically say every decision you make is a financial decision to a certain extent and you know we want to help you with all of it so uh we have a, a whole sort of way of doing things a facet way of financial planning that we walk all of our our members through and um and you know get them to a, a much better place from a financial standpoint um and that's that's the business we don't make money on assets under management we don't make money on commissions um it is pure subscription so you know on the one hand we are um you know very much on the side of of our, our members um you know we we are totally unconflicted we're not giving advice that uh puts us at odds with with our members best interests um but at the same time you know it's also on us to continue to prove our value, right? $3,000 a year, even though it's a lot cheaper than what else is out there, still a lot of money. It's a considered purchase. And so, um, you know, it, it puts the onus on us to be um, really, really, uh, uh, to, to deliver a very high, high value, high quality service that more than pays for itself every year. Now, in this case, you know, also you guys have raised a, a little bit of money. How much hmm. money have you guys raised today? Uh, just shy of $200 million. Uh, so quite a lot. And, you know, we've done that over the last five years. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's been a sort of steady trajectory of, of uh, growth and, and, and financings. But yeah, we've, we've got quite a bit of money under the company at this point. Hey, guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So, I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech Domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety, value, and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. You were quite intentional too when it came to your Series A and uh, you got players that were not really, you know, active in the yeah. early stages of things like Warburg, Warburg Pinkus. So how did you guys, you know, really meet in the middle of the bridge? Like how were you able to get them enrolled into the future in which the company was living into, you know, for them to get outside of their investment thesis, typical investment thesis, and and come and get behind you guys. Yeah, well, Warburg has been an incredible partner to us, and sort of staying on the theme of my career, a very non-obvious partner uh, to us as well in the in the early days. So the the quick story here is. Uh, we were working with Silicon Valley Bank as our 
banker and they had a um a fintech team who who uh, one of the guys there Denny Boyle said um hey you know there's this team at Warburg Pincus that you should really meet and we were basically pre-revenue at this point and so you know I I'd heard of them I, I looked them up and I was like this this does not feel like a great use of time but I'll do a call so I talked to one of the the principals there and um you know we talked for about an hour and at the end of it he said listen you know we've been in financial services we we have a financial services group and we've been in this market for a long time um we the way that we work is uh, we come up with these sort of theses around the future and like here are the trends we're looking in you know if we find a company that um you know that or here here's sort of like 10 10 things that we think are going to define the future of wealth management and if we find a company that checks the boxes on like five or six um you know we're going to dig in and try and get involved uh to be totally frank you guys tick the boxes on 10 out of 10 which we we've actually never seen before and so at the time we actually weren't fundraising we we're probably 9 9 or 12 months away from raising a series a and um and they they basically preempted it and they said look like we believe in this and we want to do it um now this was 2018 so uh you know it, the the sort of average series a or the standard series a at that point i think was like eight to ten million dollars uh and they basically said listen we're investing out of an 18 billion dollar fund the smallest check we can write is 30 million bucks um and so you know what could you do with 30 million bucks and that was like that was like a holy crap moment i remember us sitting at my kitchen table with our cfo and we're like okay we gotta like tear apart our financial model and think about what we could do with that level of capital um and and uh and you know the way we thought about it was a bit like okay we're kind of raising our series a and our series b at the same time and so let's be thoughtful about how we deploy that over a longer period of time instead of sort of spending it all up front and um and so we got the deal done uh, it was definitely you know it took it took three months or so to, to negotiate um you know they're they're used to doing sort of later stage deals with a lot of bells and whistles and you know we were looking for you know a one-page term sheet and, and we did managed to, you know, obviously come to come to terms. And honestly, if, if I had to do it all over again, I would work with them 100%. Like they've been such amazing partners, especially when you consider that they don't typically play at the pre revenue stage. And like, you know, as I'm sure many of the folks that are listening to this podcast know, like, the early stages are messy, right? It's like, you know, you put to, put forward these projections, you have no real idea how the projections are going to play out. You know, you're running a bunch of experiments. You're trying to figure out do do you even have product market fit? If you don't, how do you how do you iterate your way there? Like it's very hard to build a five-year forecast. It's, it's impossible to build a five-year forecast. And I mean we reforecast our 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 model so many times. And um, you know, the level of patience and commitment that they've had with us uh has been has been really extraordinary. So um so yeah, that that's I mean, if there's like one big takeaway there, it's like find an investor who um shares your vision of the future and is willing to stick with you to see it all the way through. Uh, because how you get there is never gonna be how you sort of map it out initially. And so you gotta find someone who like believes enough in the in in the end state that um, you know, they're they're willing to go along for the ride. Now, for the people that are listening to when it comes to investment thesis and to be able to find people that have the right type of investment thesis that matches whatever you're envisioning for the business, how should people think about that? So I think this is um, one of the one of the big sort of fallacies in in fundraising is that you should always be in pitch mode. 
Um, and I think that a lot of founders and a lot of CEOs go out there and immediately start pitching investors. And I think that one of the best things that you can do is uh, go into listen mode. And so, um, and and what I mean what I mean by that is like when you're not actively fundraising, you should take as many meetings with investors as you can um, that you have time for. And we can talk about sort of how you allocate time internally versus externally because that's always a, a bit of a struggle as a founder. Um, but you know, take as 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 many meetings as as you can, and basically grill investors on what their vision of the future of the market that you're in is, um, because I think you'll discover a lot of things. Number one is you'll separate the wheat from the chaff. There are a lot of uh, VCs out there who basically say like, yeah, we invest in all these different verticals, um, and you know, fintech is is one of my favorites because like fintech is such a broad. Uh, you know, it could mean so many things, right? It was like, yeah, you know, we're fintech investors. Like, okay, cool. Like, what do you think about, you know, the future of consumer financial planning or consumer wealth management? And, you know, you get a lot of people who actually don't have any clue what they're, what, what that market, you know, is, is doing. And so, like, you'll pretty quickly be able to determine who, who knows what they're talking about and, and who doesn't. Um, and then I'd say the second point is like, you know, if you ask those questions, you're going to get a sense of like, who actually has a view that matches with yours. Um, and typically, I've found like, those are the conversations that you want to keep going. Um, and those are going to end up being the people that that do the deal. And so if you can find like four or five of those folks, and, um, and kind of, you know, keep the conversations warm, uh, you know, up until the point where you're running a process, then I think the process falls into place, you know, relatively quickly and relatively easily. Um, you know, I think, uh, I, I think, I think like getting to know people over time and building a relationship. Because the other thing too is like, once you get into, you know, once someone invests in your company, joins your board, like, you know, it's cliche, and I'm sure you've heard, you've had other guests on here who say this, but it's like, you're getting married for for a while. And in fact, it's actually far more expensive and far more damaging to break up that marriage than, you know, like, like a romantic relationship is. Um, and so you want to make sure you really know the people you're, you're, you're getting involved with. And the best way to do that is build a relationship with them over time before it gets really serious. Um, and before the, the money, the money changes hands. Well, one thing that I wanted to ask you there too is, you know, obviously we're talking about people. Uh, and uh, when it comes to people, I know that you guys have also built your guys' company uh, around the idea of remote and everyone yeah. is remote. I mean, you have like over 250 people there and and basically everyone is somewhere, you know, across the uh, the U.S. So, so how did you guys go about building this and how do you embrace culture when everyone is remote? Yeah, that's a, we could talk for a long time about this. So when we started the company, one of our, sort of views was we don't want to be competing for financial advisor talent in like any one geography. So we want to basically enable our financial advisors to work from anywhere and we could hire financial advisors across the country. So um, when COVID hit, we had about 70 employees and half of them were remote, half of them were in an, in an office. So we were already set up for, for virtual at that point. And like we closed our office on a Thursday, we, you know, Friday, the, the next day was business as usual. And, you know, we had, I, I think like, we, you know, we've, we grew just for context, like we, we were about $2 million of ARR at that point. Um, you know, we're at 35 million now. So, you know, we've had, 
sort of massive growth in the last three years. Um, and, and I think being sort of ready to go and not sort of skipping a st- any beats there was a big driver of that. Um, but, you know, we now are three years into it and we are totally virtual. Um, we're now up to about 250 people. Uh, I think at this point, only about 14 people who were in the office originally are still at the company. So like the vast majority of our, of our team has never worked in an office with another facet team member before. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to make this work. And I think like, what's interesting is right now we live in this moment of time where there's a very, very divided opinion on should people be back in an office or should people be working virtually forever? Um, and, you know, now that like it's normal to be back in an office again. Um, and I think that like we're, we're, what we basically say is, you know, the most important thing is figuring out what is the work that's being done and is that better suited to being in person or, or virtual. And so there's certain things that we do that uh, have to be in person. So any sort of strategic planning, any sort of like creative work around product development, um, you know, any sort of uh, sort of budgeting stuff, obviously like, uh, you know, cross team collaboration, we try and do that in person. We try and make it so that anyone who's in those functions doesn't go for more than two months without being in some sort of in-person environment. Um, and then, you know, we have folks who are like more of our individual contributors, like our financial advisors, our salespeople, um, you know, their job is is actually much better suited for working, working at home. Um, and so, you know, we still do get everyone together. We do an annual sort of all team in person, all hands called Facet Fest. And then at least once a quarter, we get, you know, smaller folks together or smaller teams together. So, uh, so everyone gets in person interaction. Um, and then we make some like very um, intentional choices about uh, virtual meetings on a weekly basis. So, you know, frequent all hands, like over rotate on transparency and communication so people know what's going on. The biggest issue with virtual is it just builds silos naturally. Um, and so, you know, so our whole thing is how do we how do we break those down? I will say, like, having been a proponent of virtual work for a long time, um, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be quite as uh, at the forefront of virtual as we are now. Like, I would, I would push to get everyone in an office. It, it does um, make a huge, a huge difference in terms of productivity, just the ability to get stuff done. How so? How so, Anders? Because, uh, you know, there's a lot of people pushing for the virtual side. I mean, yeah. how do you think it would have been different, you know, being in an office space? So I think there's um, there's two big things. One is it's hard to have um, uh, sort of spontaneous interactions, right? So like think about, you know, you're, you're a, a biz ops manager responsible for uh, maintaining our, you know, our sales force uh, instance. And uh, something weird is going on. If you're in an office, you can walk over to the desk of salesperson and watch what happens live. Um, the coordination of trying to do that virtually is a much higher cost. Uh, you have to send a Slack. You got to set up a Zoom. You got to coordinate calendars. Like there's, it's, it's just, there's a lot more friction there. Um, and you start, you know, all those little things add up, and it gets it, it, it just things take longer, and they get, um, you know, they, they get, uh, uh, you know, there's more of a tax there to make that happen. And then I think the other thing is um, just the building of relationships across different teams. Uh, doesn't ha- happen as naturally. Like when I was at LiveRamp, I had friends that I would go out drinking with who were engineers, and I was a business development guy. Um, if we were virtual, I never would have interacted with them. And so, um, you know, so so like that sort of, um, you know, it, it, it's a fairly sort of qualitative thing. It's hard to put a, a number, a, a measure on it, but you know that um, 
that sort of relationship and trust building doesn't happen nearly as easily in a, in a virtual environment. So, you know, those would be the two big things I think that are sort of the biggest tax. That being said, like, you know, everyone saves two hours a day not commuting. And that's, you know, massively accretive too, both for, you know, the, the company, but also from a, um, you know, a, just a personal well-being standpoint. So, you know, it, it definitely kind of kind of cuts both ways. So now imagine, because obviously all these people, you know, employees, investors, you know, they, they've all been really enrolled into that future that you're living into, no? And uh, when it comes to vision, I want to ask you, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight mm -hmm. and you wake up in a world, Anders, where the vision of asset is fully realized. Yeah. What does that world look like? Well, right now, um, 76% of Americans don't have access to unconflicted and affordable uh, financial advice. Um, oftentimes, you can get one, but not the other. Um, so, so this idea that um, you know financial advice can help you live a better life today and and sort of unlock wellness for you today, uh, and at the same time set you up for a really bright future um, is something that people have been talking about for a long time, but no one has really sort of brought that that vision to to, to light. And so, for us. Um, you know, that's our big mission is that, you know, there's, there's hundreds of millions of Americans who desperately need help. Um, but the existing industry, uh, isn't set up to, to, to give them that, that help that they need. And so, um, you know, if I could wake up tomorrow and like, you know, we've, we've achieved everything. Um, you know, we talk about it as earning the right to be the home screen brand for your finances. So, you know, every American has, uh, the facet app on their phone. And, you know, we are proactively helping them uh, make smarter financial decisions on a day in day out basis, um, you know, driven by a combination of expert people and uh, really great technology. Um, and, you know, just sort of general, general knowledge that we're able to, to share and, and help people live a, a better, better financial life. You know, at this point, we've got about 18,000 individuals that we work with. So, you know, we obviously still have a long ways to go. Um, but of those 18,000, uh, 80% have never worked with a financial advisor before. So as we sort of see it play out in the, you know, in, as, as the company has scaled, you know, our original thesis is that there is an enormous market there that, um, you know, that really needs the help, but, but uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't have uh, access with, with what exists today. You know, that, that's now really sort of played out at scale for us. And I think that the, you know, that for us, the future is, is, is you know, continuing to, um, you know, to, to go there. So now let's talk about the past because we're talking about the future, but I want to talk about the past with a lens of reflection. Let's say yeah. I put you into a time machine and mm -hmm. I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time where maybe, you know, you were now finishing off your chapter of Life Ramp and you were wondering what to do next. And you're yeah. maybe like thinking about the entrepreneurial side of things. Let's say you're able to have, sit down with that younger Anders and you're able to give that younger Anders one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Um, as cliche as it sounds, maniacal focus on an incredible customer experience. Um, that is something that I think we learned the hard way. Um, we didn't do right up front and we, and we paid for that uh, you know, up until fa fairly recently. So when we started the company, again, there was this whole thing around like, okay, there's... 8 million households that don't 
you know, that, that basically aren't a good fit for traditional financial advisors, but are still working with them anyways. <clears throat> and so one of the big insights we had from that is the cost of human-based financial advice is very high. And so if we can build technology to lower the cost, um, then, you know, there's a much bigger market out there. So the sort of founding of the company was really uh, sort of rooted in this sort of cost efficiency and, uh, you know, a better financial model, like a better unit economic model for financial advice, um, you know, which is critical, right? And, And that's the thing that makes our company function. But, you know, we... We definitely, I think, over-rotated on uh, how do we make our advisors more efficient instead of how do we create an incredible client experience um, and then figure out how to, uh, how, how to deliver that in a cost-effective way. And so uh, it wasn't until the last couple of years when we basically took a step back and said, okay, um, you know, we have 100 financial advisors uh, and we have like a hundred different ways of doing financial advice, and so um, you know, so how do we create one consistent facet client experience that? Uh, so you know, if, if you onboard as a client tomorrow, someone else onboards as a client the next day, we know that you know, with very little variation, you two are getting the exact same experience at a very high quality. And if um, you know, if, if if you can't do that, then uh, you know, number one, you're cre- you're just you're sort of at the the whim of um, you know of of uh, whoever that person talks to that day, and hopefully they're having a good day. Um, but at the same time, you also can't really build technology or process that scales and, in fact, is cost effective. And so, I think like if I had to go back and do it all over again, I would have had a maniacal focus on that in you know the first two years of building the company, and I think we would have saved a lot of money. Uh, we would have. Um, you know, built a higher quality service from from day one, and I think we would have been a, a much um, you know we, we'd probably be farther than than we are today. Um, you know, that said, I think we learned that lesson you know a couple of years ago, and the progress we made there is, has been pretty good. I love it. So, uh, Anders, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Anders at facet dot com, um, and uh, you know, look, we're we're hiring. Um, we're always looking for, uh, for new clients, obviously new members. Um, you know, I would imagine actually a lot of folks who listen to this podcast are probably great fits for, uh, you know, for, for our service. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, facet.com. Check us out. Amazing. Well, Hey, Anders, thank you so much for being on the dealmaker show. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. This is really fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.